I don't know if you noticed, but now that we're in the official sanctuary, Josh and I decided that we needed to get a uniform for Sundays. Um, if you've been around any length of time, you've probably heard me at some point talk about the years that Amy and I spent in Pennsylvania. At, uh, it, it's, the process started less than a year after we got married, but uh, we actually were on the interview trip on our first anniversary and uh, accepted the job shortly thereafter to go work at this little Bible college in Pennsylvania that we really didn't know that much about, and we only knew a handful of people there and had only known them. I had only known them for a few months. Amy met them on the interview trip, and so it was an interesting chapter in our lives, for sure. It was a good chapter in a lot of ways. It was also hard as we stepped into this culture of a Bible college that I grew up in you know, a relatively conservative Southern Baptist environment, but this was like uh, stepping back into when my mom... <laughs> I grew up in a conservative Southern Baptist environment where occasionally I was permitted to do things that I knew that my parents didn't really want me to do. Um, and as they were permitting me to do them, they would tell me, uh, or one of my two parents would tell me uh, what her daddy would think about it um, and what she would have been allowed to do. You know, So I had this image in my mind of like 1950s, 1960s conservative Southern Baptist life um, and when we, when we landed at this Bible college, I felt like I had been transported there times three. Um, and just to give you a little bit of an example of what that was like, and, and I'll say two things about this before I reveal some of this to you. Um, you've, some of you have seen pieces of this, but I don't think exactly what I'm going to show you tonight. Two things. One, I knew a little bit of this when we went, but not all of it, and it might have impacted our decision. Uh, and two... By the time we left, a good chunk of what, what I'm going to show you had changed. They were um, on the cusp of some changes. But this is where it was. We arrived in 2001, and, and this uh, language that you're going to see was current as of, I think, 2002 or 2003. So this is uh, the first piece applied to students and to faculty and staff all the way up to the president of the, of the college. Um, and it says, therefore, the college asks that faculty, staff, and students refrain from the possession or use of alcoholic beverages, tobacco, or, or other non-medicinal drugs, from gambling. And I know this is current to 2002 or three because when I first saw it in 2001, this actually said from card playing normally associated with gambling. Um, this was progress. From gambling, dancing, and the attendance at the movie theater, <laughs> some of you know me, um, from occult practices, which comes immediately after attendance at the movie theater, from extremes of fashion uh, or immodest dressed. Okay, so this applied to all of us, everybody. Uh, now, this stuff was for the students. Students are not permitted to view movies, whether in a theater, VCR, so you can tell we're 2001 here, television or on a computer with PG-13, R, X, or NC-17 rating. Also, students should not view PG or non-rated movies which contain nudity, sexual themes, profane language, or excessive violence, okay? So that's first half of the media uh, policy. Here we go to music. As an institution that desires to be biblical in its teaching and one that desires to train servants for Christian ministries, 
We desire to encourage listening habits, which reflect a conservative Christian perspective. We believe it is important to maintain a sensitivity to others, other believers' preferences, convictions, and cultural backgrounds, which is kind of hilarious because this was a very one-way, that sentence was interpreted very much in a one-way direction in terms of sensitivity to others' backgrounds. Certain types of popular music are easily recognized by Christians as undesirable. Rock, country, rap, heavy metal, uh, and other similar forms of questionable music are not permitted at any time. This is real. This includes, but is not limited to, the forms of music which are typified by, and here's your 2001 list of band acts. Um, two things, U2 is on this list, which was not okay with me. A lot of the rest of it, it was fine for, for, with me that it was banned. Um, but also, uh, I love that Faith Hill is tagged on the end, and I'm pretty sure that only happened because Tim McGraw was included in the list, and somebody along the way said, wait, Faith Hill is married to Tim McGraw. She has to be on the band list if he is, right? It goes on. As with secular music, Christian music has also increased in variety and quantity in recent years. Certain types of Christian music are also considered unacceptable on our campus. Generally, unapproved styles of music are typified by... Audio Adrenaline, Carmen, which again, there were some of these that I was okay with uh, the ban on, DC Talk, on and on. Rebecca St. James is funny to me, and I'll tell you why in just a second. But we got generally acceptable styles of music are typifi typified by this list. Acapella, so the Church of Christ in the room. Andrew Peterson, and this is funny to me, I pulled, he's a friend of mine now, and I pulled this up today and had totally forgotten he was on the list, so I'm going to send this. He grew up in this kind of world, so I'm going to send this to him. But what, what cracks me up is that Rich Mullins is on the approved list, and I just want to assure you that Rebecca St. James never wrote or recorded anything even remotely as subversive to this kind of Christian culture uh, as Rich Mullins. So I like to think that the fact that they let him sneak in there was sort of the seeds of change in uh, the college. I tell you all of that to say that quickly after getting there, um, I developed a mission in my time at this place because this was all so foreign and strange to me. And, uh, you know, there was part of me that just laughed like you laughed, except now some of this applied to me. And the part that didn't apply to me applied to students that I was getting to know, and I had strong opinions about how good this was for their adult formation as college students. Um, and so it became my mission in my season there to either instigate a little bit of change or be a real pain in the backside if I couldn't actually uh, create some change. And there was change that happened. I don't take any credit for that. That's not the point of this. But... Um, but it became truly, and I can say this many years after being out of that environment, it really was kind of my mission. And it helped or didn't help, depending on how you look at it, that my boss was a vice president who had a very similar perspective to me and was very new to the institution. And so we had kind of our own little corner where we were always cooking up ways to provoke some kind of conversation or some kind of change in the organization. There were good manifestations of that. There were good conversations that we had with people who had more power than we did. Uh, times that we asked good questions. Uh, ultimately, I somehow 
ended up on a committee to rewrite the student handbook. I think because I had said to the vice president of students so many times, like, you have no idea how this lands with students, the way that all of this is worded. And so, uh, so there were good things that happened as a result of this kind of mission, unspoken mission I had in my head. There were less healthy uh, manifestations of my mission to subvert this, which included uh, going to, to the movie theater um, anyway. Uh, and my rationale at that point was if I see someone there at the movie theater who I'm not supposed to see, then both of us are going to have sort of an unspoken agreement of silence that we saw each other at the movie theater. Otherwise, I can just trust that no one will see me at the movie theater. Um, I also uh, engaged in a fair amount of preaching the gospel of U2 to students, despite the fact that they weren't allowed to listen to U2 on campus. And then uh, my favorite, maybe uh, least healthy but favorite little rebellion was uh, one of our, a guy who had a, a higher position at the college. I heard him speak at a youth conference that we had on campus one day, and he went on this long uh, deal about how he was playing golf one day and, and he heard some music playing from a house next to the golf course and he just thought it was the greatest thing he'd ever heard. He'd never heard it before. And then he finally started asking the guys that were with him, do you know what that is? And somebody said, it's Phil Collins. Um, and he did a little research and found out, of course, that Phil Collins is secular music. And he just, in this sermon, went on and on and on about how great Phil Collins was and how much he would love to listen to him but how holiness required that he not actually indulge that desire of his to listen to Phil Collins. And not long after that, I was in what we used to have in the world, which were secondhand CD stores. Um, and I found a Phil Collins Greatest Hits cassette tape, and I bought it, and I put it in an inner office envelope um, anonymously and sent it to this guy. And I, and I have always prayed that he secretly put it in his car and listened to Phil Collins. That was my mission, well, for better or worse, in those years that I was there, it was to create some kind of change, uh, to question the way that things were. And there are lots of ways, healthy and unhealthy ways, to approach mission. We all, whether we declare a mission for our lives or for the organizations or groups we're a part of or not, ultimately, we all end up having some sort of mission. I didn't really declare that mission for my life. It's just clear, looking back, that that was what was important to me during that time. So individually, uh, there are ways to approach mission, to define and pursue a mission for your life individually. There are ways an organization or a business defines and pursues its mission, and that's true for families, all kinds of other groups. This has also been true for the church, the capital C Church. Historically, over time, the church has had different missions, different things it tried to accomplish. Um, some of them noble, some of them less noble. There's a whole period of time uh, that we call the Crusades, where the church was clearly engaged in a mission. And in retrospect, it's clear that that really, biblically, wasn't the mission of the church as Jesus set forth. None of us, I don't think, are involved in any of those kinds of crusades these days, but there are lots of ideas about what mission uh, the church is a, supposed to be on and how we as individuals, how we as a local church grab onto that. So as we 
continue into uh, this series of looking at these core things we want to be about as a church, and we talk about mission in particular, uh, what I want to do, we're going to do for the next couple of weeks what I just honestly will tell you is kind of theology of mission, Um, but it's important and I don't think it's boring. When, when you hear the word theology, it may click a certain switch in your brain. Um, but what I want to do with that is try to keep it really simple and direct to what I think is very clear in the scriptures about the mission of the church. We want to, and, and I think the place to start and the way that has made the most sense to me over time of looking at this is asking, what is God's mission? What is God up to in the world, and how do we join him on that mission? And so, in an effort to keep that simple, I want to focus uh, for the next few minutes on two different uh, places where Jesus speaks about mission, but I want to start here in John 3, verse 17. He says, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is, I think, really simply put, God's mission. His mission is to save the world through Jesus. So our question, if that's true, our question is, what does it mean for us as individuals, as a church? What does it look like for us to join God in his mission to save the world through Jesus? And if we're to look at it sort of the other way around, what does salvation We talk about if God's mission is to save us, if God's mission is ultimately salvation of the world through Jesus, what does salvation look like for all kinds of people? What does salvation look like for the people in our daily lives who need to be saved from something? And you can start, yes, for sure, with people who don't know Jesus or don't follow Jesus. But they aren't the only people who need salvation. I need saving from several different things on a daily basis. So does the person sitting next to you in this room who probably already knows and follows Jesus. So what does salvation look like for all of us? What does salvation look like for people who can't afford their next meal, either for reasons that they have no control over or because they spent their family's meal money on dope or on uh, a trip to the casino? What does salvation look like for that person? What does salvation look like for people who lost everything they have in a flood a couple of months ago that came down from a sky that we're told that God controls. What is salvation for those people? What does salvation look like for people who live in countries that are torn about apart by war, where bombs and terrorists are a daily occurrence, where the good guys are essentially as evil as the bad guys? What does salvation look like for people in those kinds of circumstances in that We could go on and on and on enlisting those kinds of circumstances. Because if Jesus is telling the truth here that God's mission is to save the world through him, he's aware of all of those people, of all of their circumstances, of all of those stories, and his aim is to save them. Yes? So how can we join him in that? So I'm going to look at these two things that Jesus said. One of them is is essentially this with the verse before it, and then the other is from Matthew chapter 25. So John records in chapter 3, Jesus saying, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, 
so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So for a long time in the church and in certainly in the part of the church that I grew up in, this would, this would essentially be the answer of what does salvation look like? What is God up to? But Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, come you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you took care of me. I was in prison and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. I think before we can be a people who are on mission with God, we have to look around the world and we have to look at our own lives and we have to dig into this question, where what is the hope of salvation and where is the hope of salvation for all kinds of people in all kinds of circumstances in the world? What does our Christian hope in terms of God saving people, in terms of resurrection and eternal life and so forth, what does that mean for us? What does that mean for the world? Is sharing a gospel that is about eternal destiny, about you going to heaven when you die, our primary obligation in sharing hope with the world. Because that's how the evangelical part of the church has defined Christian hope and sharing Christian hope primarily for a very long time. That it is about sharing a message that helps people get into heaven. But given what Jesus says in Matthew 25, in addition to the eternal, how can we help the world realize hope now? Some kind of salvation now is that part of our mission. Can we work within the kingdom of God to bring hope alive for individuals and people who, for whatever reason, don't have hope right now? Do justice and food and peace and water and freedom and medicine and hugs and all of those kinds of things have a meaningful place in God's mission in the world? Or are they just nice things that God intends to use to, to help us get people into heaven? I think... Um, we're still kind of recovering. I'm still kind of recovering. And I think a lot of us are kind of recovering from this false dichotomy that entered the life of the church. And I think it's impacted people on all sides, not just one kind of people. I think it's impacted the sort of modern, more conservative versions of the church. And uh, I think it's impacted what would be defined as a more postmodern emergence of kind of a new way of seeing following Jesus. Because one of those says we're, we're mostly about the mission of God. The gospel is mostly about saving people so they don't go to hell and they do go to heaven. 
And it grabs, it kind of grabs the gospel and it says, this is primarily a message about the afterlife. It's uh, ra- and, and kind of the clearest uh, manifestation of doing that with the gospel, at least in my background, was a program called Evangelism Explosion, which was intended to help the church evangelize the world. And it really boiled everything down to, you should ask people you meet, these two questions, and it will help you know if they need salvation and how you can lead them to salvation. And the two questions were, have you come to the point in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die today, you would go to heaven? Or is that something you would say you're still working on? And the second question is, suppose you were to die today and stand before God and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? So these two questions were kind of a a way for you to initiate conversation and to carry salvation to people who, by their answers to these questions, revealed that they were in need of it. And for some of us in the room, this may still make a lot of sense. Uh, For a lot of us, we probably cringe a little bit at this, either by experience or just by seeing this sort of version of the gospel, which feels like not quite it or not quite enough. Um, And and whichever side of that you fall on, it just reveals kind of where you're coming from, what your bias is. And I just, from my point of view, affirm that this is not the whole gospel. And it's, it's not what we as a church, what I personally, what we as a church have deemed the most natural way for us to show hope to the world. But I also want to say that what's behind these questions is not altogether wrong. And we need to be careful that we don't become jerks about how we view the way many people have legitimately come into contact with with God through Jesus. Because as much as this is not what I do, and this is not how I go about trying to demonstrate and talk about Jesus in the world, uh, these kinds of conversations that are provoked here are valuable. And they are connected, can be connected to the gospel. Um, And though it's not me anymore, I came, I entered the kingdom through this kind of thinking. And I think if I asked you to raise your hand, if you became a Christian or entered faith in some way because of this approach to the gospel, most of us in the room would raise our hands if we've been believers for any length of time. The other half, so that's, that's one half of, of what I think is an unnecessary division of the gospel. It says this is the thing and the only thing that we really need to devote our time to when it comes to delivering hope and salvation to the world. Okay? The other half of the false dichotomy says that the gospel is primarily about living like Jesus. And, and what that generally means is it's about loving people without regard to their position in the world, without regard to their beliefs, and meeting their basic human needs. It's about dignity and about supplying what people actually need when they're in need and about loving them where they are. It will emphasize social justice usually and downplay um, the necessity of believing a certain thing or holding to, to certain core doctrines or whatever. These are generalizations on both sides, right? And, and it will downplay this Christian concept most of the time of conversion, the way that we uh, might understand it as it 
would play out from someone responding to these two questions in a certain way and then receiving a message of salvation and deciding I'm going to turn my whole life around and, and give my life to Jesus. And for some of you, that way of seeing following Jesus makes more sense and it feels more comfortable. For others, you hear that and you shake your head and you feel like this is just Jesus hijacked by sort of the PC hippie crowd. Um, but I just want to offer some ca cautions again. That's not the whole gospel, but it's not entirely wrong either. Um, because Jesus clearly said what he said in Matthew 25 about where he is present and what he is up to among the broken and the needy and the unloved and the forgotten in the world. So one of these views of God's hope, of God's mission in the world, would sort of pride itself in theological correctness, and the other would sort of pride itself in a more progressing, a progressive sort of loving ethos. I think the concern is that I don't find either of them by themselves theologically sound or terribly progressive. I think they, they each, any one of them alone just maintains and perpetuates an artificial split in the nature of Jesus and his gospel. Okay? That's not news probably to any of you who've been here for any length of time. This is not a new concept for most of us who have discussed this. But before we move into really talking about mission, because here's the thing, one of the, one of the things that feels really important to me as we move through this in the fall is that we change, is that we grow, is that our approach to mission in the world, when we talk about this on Sundays or in comm groups or when we have lunch together or whatever we do, that we grow more missional in the world around us, that we move forward in joining God in his mission in the world. If we're going to do that, it's really important that we understand the full picture of his actual mission in the world and we have to start here. And this is a constant battle. It's a constant battle for me to remember both parts of this and ask the Lord, what does it look like for these two things together to work together and us to work with you in your mission in the world? And I think we've unnecessarily tried to turn Jesus against himself and say, no, he's about this. No, he's about this. He said both that he came to bring eternal life he said that very clearly. And he said he came to be with, to be among the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger and the poor and the sick and the prisoner. And if we're going to be with him on mission, we have to be those kind of people as well, whose minds are set on things that are eternal as it relates to the way that God is trying to save people and whose lives are present with the kind of people that Jesus, in this picture in Matthew 25 of the final days, looks at his people and says, here are the ones who were with me because they were with this people, and here are the ones who weren't. He makes a distinction. It matters. This was part of his was and is part of his mission. And as long as we see the hope of the gospel being primarily about how do we help people escape this world clean, we're always going to neglect both the practical call of God on our lives as humans who live in this world now, and I think we're also going to miss something really important theologically about eternity. We'll come back and talk about that next week. But it's also true that if we just see Jesus following in the nature of the gospel 
to be primarily about someone's physical and emotional concerns and their improving their conditions without respect to the, to the eternal significance of Jesus, then we mute the gospel of its transcendent power and we defri- deprive those people that we love of the more, the capital M-O-R-E, more, that God can give them that we can't give them. The truth is that Jesus did concern him himself with our eternal condition. And he does offer hope for life beyond the grave. And he cares a great deal about how we live in the here and now and how that eternal transcendent hope that's supposed to guide us causes us to engage those without hope right now, causes us to work for justice and goodness as we build his kingdom. The real Christian hope is for God's new creation, for God to do what he did in Jesus through the cross and the resurrection for the whole creation, for the new heavens, for the new earth, for a hope that began in Jesus and a hope that is about now, about real hope for people now, and about then, about the eternal hope that he provides. And we don't need to choose one or the other. In fact, we can't choose one or the other and not end up being at odds with the gospel in some way. God doesn't look at the created world, and this is one of the things that happened with with seeing the gospel and the mission of God as only about people's eternal destiny, is the, the created world becomes pretty unimportant. It's just about getting people out of the created world into heaven. But God doesn't see the created world in our, li- in, in our lives in that created world as just placeholders until heaven. This is his creation that he's loving and he's redeeming. And that redemption began at the arrival of Jesus. It's going to be consummated when Jesus returns. And we're participants in the present tense of that redemption, which is fueled by his first arrival and his building for his his return. And Jesus said both of these things. He said that he gave his son, God gave his son, so that everyone who believes in him would never actually die would live eternally. And he said, those that are blessed by his fathers, those who inherit the kingdom, are those who saw him hungry and gave him food. Before I finish, that's, that's kind of the, the theology for the week, um, kind of a theology of the mission of God, the hope of God in the world. Uh, but I want to say a couple of things to us in particular, because as we do some theology um, of mission, and that, that's just, theology is just about understanding who God is and what he's up to. That's it. So we're all theologians in some way. It's not wasted time for us to talk about theology. Uh, but I also want to be sure that we're connecting that to our, to our lives in the here and now. So I want to say two things to us about where I think this, this lands. The first is this, is that you can't, we can't be on God's mission until God's mission has taken root in us, individually and as a people. You have to believe and understand these two truths that Jesus spoke about, um, about what God is up to in you and for you. You have to believe that this is for you, these two things that Jesus said. That he gave his only son, Jesus, for you. 
And that if you believe in him, you won't die forever, but you will live forever. And you have to believe, it has to take root in you, that when you're hungry or thirsty or alone or abandoned or poor and unsure how you're going to get out of debt or pay your bills or you're sick and you're not sure you're ever going to get well or you've broken rules or laws and become an outcast, God sees you. And he sent Jesus to be with you in that moment, in your worst, most desperate, most messed up, messing up your own life moment. God sees you and he sent Jesus to be with you in those moments of need and rejection and fear. The mission and hope of the gospel is for you before it can do anything through you. And I know our ability to really live into that, I think most of us would say, yeah, I get that. I'm a Christian. Um, I know that our ability to, to, to dwell in that hope fluctuates at some level with our humanity and the struggles that come with that. But I'm not offering this part as an admonition or a rebuke. I'm offering it as an invitation, as a proclamation of the good news of, a, of the gospel, as an announcement of the hope that God is on a mission to find and rescue and save you where you are right now, tomorrow, in 10 years. That's the mission of God. And that has to take root in you first. And if I'm just really honest about myself and about us collectively, I think we um, have spent a lot of time in the yeah, but season of responding to the hope, to the mission of God in our lives. And I want to continue, as we've been doing for some time, to call us out of that. And what I mean by the yeah, but place is, yeah, I know God loves me. I know he sees me, but things are just so very hard right now. And I can't live in the real hope of God's love in my hard moments. And so I just want to say, come out. I don't mean be perfect. I, I mean refuse to believe that you can't, that God can't give you real hope and real change in those hard moments. Confess when you don't believe that. Confess when you don't believe that God can or that he is or that you can, what, however that manifests itself. And ask Jesus to come into those hard spaces to be with you in the darkest, hardest, most maddening, tempting, weak moments. And for him to be Jesus, to bring the power of the cross and the resurrection to bear on your heart and your mind and your body and your spirit in those moments because there is no way we can go to a hurting world and say the cross and the resurrection is enough to heal you no matter where you are or where you've been if we are still rejecting that truth in our own hearts and our own lives. So receive that and come out and allow Jesus. Those, there are dead places in us where we just can't. I get it. I have them right now. And my, my, I think what the Lord is saying is I, I can still raise the dead in that spot. Will you let me? Will you believe that I can? That's the first thing. The second thing I want to say to us is um, we're not going to be, th th this is kind of a declaration about us as a church. We're not going to be people who are bent one way or another by a divided gospel. 
I understand that one side or the other of this way of understanding Jesus and his mission may be hard for some of us who either have just grown up knowing one way and we struggle to adapt or understand anything new about a different way. And it's, it's hard for some who were burned or wounded or disillusioned by one way. Um, and so they've taken hold of another way and don't really care to look back at what they might have let go of that, that still matters. I get that. I lived in that place for a long period of time myself. But I, I want to say this, and I want to say it really clearly. We're the church. We follow Jesus, period. And this is Jesus. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers, all things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. Our life experiences, our opinions, our struggles, our fears, our wounds, our strengths, our interests, our new discoveries, all of these things will impact who we are as a body, but they will take their rightful place at the foot of the cross, at the feet of Jesus, who will be before all things and who will hold all of those things together. He is and will be the head of this body of the church. He has first place in everything. This is our starting place. This is our foundation for not just mission, but identity as a church. And the, it's the finish line for all of our conversations about who we are and who we will be and how we'll grow and how we'll change as a body. So as we work through who we are, as we work through what we're doing or where we're going, it's always going to be about this. And we can't define ourselves from any other starting place, from any other foundation but this one. And it's not that you're not allowed to struggle with even this truth within the body. You are. It's just that your struggle, my struggle with this truth at times isn't going to pull us off this hill. This is literally the hill that we will die on. The shared understanding that if the church is to be the church, we will be a people gathered around the supremacy of Jesus in all things. Jesus who reconciled all things on earth and in heaven by making peace through the blood of his cross. And just as the fullness of God dwells in him, the fullness of who he is and what he is doing in the world will guide our mindset and will guide our mission as a church, always. When Jesus taught us to pray, I think he pulled all of this together and he taught us not just to pray, but to put down roots that would grow us into his mission. The message translates the Lord's Prayer this way. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best. As above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. 
You can do anything you want. You're ablaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. This roots us in the mission of God in the world. We pray this not just to learn how to pray, not just to connect to God personally, but because it guides us into his way and his mission in the world. Reveal who you are, God. Set the world right. Do what's best as above. Do that here. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. Yes. Yes, we say yes to that. So I want us to close today by saying this prayer together as most of us probably learned it. Um, and we're joining our kids and com kids, by the way, who are learning and beginning to memorize the Lord's Prayer today. So this is something that you can practice with them and do together with them at home. But I want us to do this as we finish. First of all, because I want, us, I want you, as you pray it, to receive the goodness of God's mission of hope in your own life. He has brought his peace and forgiveness and presence, just as it is in heaven, for you here, for your life right now. And then I want us to embrace that his mission isn't just for me, isn't just for you, isn't just for us. It's for the world through us. And I want us to say yes, yes, yes to his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven through us. So let's say this together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, would you um, teach us to pray? <laughs> would you burn these words into our hearts and our minds and our mouths? Would you make us people who say this on a daily basis, who say, your kingdom come, your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, and who say, you're in charge. You can do whatever you want. And so, become people who receive what you have for us, your goodness, your refining, your change, your love, and become people who are joining you in the mission to carry that to this whole world that you created, that you love, that you're redeeming. And we pray all of that in Jesus' name. Amen.